Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Tom Ladies. I'm a professor at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and a clinical pharmacist specialist at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. I am currently one of the scientific editors for pharmacotherapy. Today we are speaking with Dr. Michael Ryback about his paper entitled Role of Combination Antimicrobial Feed for Vancomycin-Resistant Enterococcus Fecium Infections, Review of the Literature. Uh, Mike is well-known to the audience. He's Professor of Pharmacy and Medicine and Director of the Anti-Infective Research Laboratory at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, Wayne State University, Detroit, Michigan. Mike has a very prolific research program focused on laboratory and clinical evaluations of antibiotic exposure and its relationship to development of resistance. Mike is currently supported by the NIH to evaluate combination antibiotic therapy against vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Tom. So, Mike, as clinicians, we all struggle um, with treating enterococcus infections, largely due to their innate ability to develop antibiotic resistance. So the question that often comes up in the clinic is, why does enterococcus have a greater proclivity to develop antibiotic resistance relative to other um, bacteria? Hey, Tom, that's a great question. You know, as you know, enterococci are part of the normal intestinal microflora or microbiome in, in humans and in animals and widely exist in nature. However, the species um, enterococcus faecalis and enterococcus facium are probably the two most responsible for the majority of hospital-associated infections. These infections are particularly important to individuals who have pre-existing comorbid conditions or are immunosuppressed, such as in the case of patients who receive chemotherapy for cancer or immunosuppressive drugs in the case of patients uh, that are transplant. With regards to resistance, uh, enterococci are very unique in that they have the ability to develop antimicrobial resistance through a variety of diverse genetic strategies. As opposed to a lot of different bacteria, enterococci develop antibiotic resistance by adopting foreign DNA through plasmid acquisition, by genetic mutation upon exposure to antibiotics, and by overexpression of genes such as efflux pumps, genes that are responsible for efflux pumps, and also a variety of very sophisticated adaptive cell wall envelope response to antibiotics that not only defeats antibiotic cell wall active agents, but promotes the survival of these organisms in the human host, especially in the hospital environment where they're mostly a problem. Under antibiotic pressure, multidrug resistant enterococci can become the dominant flora, which predisposes patients, especially immunocompromised patients, to invasive infections. As the, uh, of the two species, the Caelus and Thacium, Enterococcus Thacium has a much higher tendency to be multidrug resistant, including vancomycin resistant. As you are well aware, most hospital centers across the U.S. are now reporting over 80% of the Thacium are vancomycin resistant. The resistance to vancomycin is, is quite unique as well. It's acquired via a transposon acquisition that results in a substitution of the terminal amino acid and peptidic glycan chains. That's the target site for vancomycin. Uh, the target site is the dialanine de uh, um, uh, termini, and this has been substituted for a D-lactate. 
This amino acid substitution of delactate results in 1,000-fold loss of vancomycin activity. The majority of BRE facium are also ampicillin resistant, which further narrows our therapeutic choices. And there are other alternatives to vancomycin beyond um, uh, these, and, and other potential alternatives that we use for vancomycin resistance include linazolid, uh, drugs like daptomycin, for which resistance to these agents is much lower, but continues to be reported on a routine basis. So I, I, to answer your question, I think that enterococci are, are in a unique position uh, to acquire resistance, to adapt to environmental uh, pressures and under pressures of antibiotic exposure. All right, thank you. So, Mike, the, the one question that always comes up in, in practice is, you know, what's optimal treatment for patients with VRE, particularly VRE blood treatments? And the one thing that often, you know, we're confronted is we get our um, culture and susceptibility panel back, and, and what we see is it's resistant to ampicillin, there's no genomycin synergy, and it's also resistant to vancomycin, and, and we often have to call the lab for certain drugs that are, that are hidden, such as susceptibility to linazolin and daptomycin. So, you know, reading your article, um, I thought it was, was well done. It was concise and clear in terms of recommendation. And I th in terms of applying that into practice, um, you know, based on your review, uh, what do you think the, the preferred regimen is for a patient with a documented VRE bloodstream, and, um, assuming that it's susceptible to both linazolid as well as daptomycin? Another good question, Tom. You know, there's a lot of agents that have come forward um, when the BRE crisis hit and when we had no drugs, as you know. Um, a number of these agents have problems associated with them. Usually it's toxicities or things that are intolerable to the patient or resistance develops very quickly. And in the early days when we had basically chlorinfenicol, uh, the first to arise to the market were things like quinupristin, delphopristin, which, as I mentioned, has... Some of these agents have very severe side effects associated with, including infusion-related side effects. But, you know, enterococci has been able to defeat drugs like quinupristin, delphopristin, this combination drug that came out very early on. Uh, Linazolid was one of the next um, agents, oxalodenone, that came off the block and specifically had a VRE indication with special consideration by the FDA because, again, we were in desperate need of having something come onto the market that could cover this organism. And we still use linazolid today. It's a very useful agent um, for treatment of serious bloodstream infections or serious infections with BRE in, in general. Um, but linazolid uh, is not necessarily a preferable agent in some cases because a lot of clinicians would prefer a, a cytal agent. As you know, linazolid is static in its mechanism of protein inhibition, protein synthesis inhibition, although it has high activity um, against these organisms and, again, is routinely used. I would think the preferable agent right now um, is daptomycin for a variety of reasons. One, uh, as you know, it's a concentration-dependent bactericidal agent. In fact, it's the only bactericidal agent that I'm aware of that we have in our armament to treat enterococcal infections. Uh, the other interesting thing, I, as I just mentioned, is the concentration-dependent ability of this drug. So you're able to dial this drug up um, and without a large fear of increasing side effects. So it has a, a safety margin there. Now, there are concerns about muscle toxicities and so on at the higher end, but uh, for the most part, based on 
clinical uh, knowledge gained in the field, it seems like we're able to overcome this with, with higher dosages. In other words, patients are able to tolerate it. So the safety margin it seems to be there, even with an increased dose when we need it. One of the things about daptomycin is that although it has high activity against enterococci, it's not as high as the activity it has against staphylococci. So we have to be aware of the dose. And the dose for bacteremia for staphylococci is 6 milligrams per kilogram per day. We already know that for staphylococcus, serious infections, including bloodstream infections, we're already using higher dosages, such as 8 milligrams per kilogram per day or, or 10 milligrams per kilogram per day. But what we know from the basic research that's been done on this uh, drug, including um, information from our laboratory looking at pharmacodynamic studies, is that you really need to dial this up a little bit to about 8 milligrams per kilogram per day until you start to see the type of activity that you find in staphylococci. So in terms of preferred regimens, I, I think nowadays most people would say that if you're going to use daptomycin uh, for a bloodstream infection, would be already, you're going to start with at least 8 milligrams per kilogram per day, and, and, and many others would use even 10 or in some cases even 12 milligrams per kilogram per day. Um, what we also found um, by researching this drug is that there is a synergy when we combine daptomycin with beta-lactams. And so much of our work and others around the country now, internationally, are looking at what beta-lactams best work with drugs like daptomycin in combination for enterococcal infections such as BRE. And what we found is that despite what you mentioned just a moment ago, that, that many of these patients are resistant to ampicillin, ampicillin still synergizes with daptomycin. Ceftarlin, which is a drug not thought to be used for enterococci because it has limited to no activity against this organism, also has the ability to synergize with daptomycin. And as well as ceftriaxone, uh, we found that even nerdopenem, although more broad spectrum than we need, is highly active in combination with daptomycin against these organisms, such as especially of DRE. And so these combinations are now being used in the field and uh, as um, a very effective regimen against um, organisms and, and very vulnerable hosts, the, as we mentioned before, the immunosuppressed patient, who are often the patient who comes down with the most serious and invasive infection here. And so I think we're gaining more and more confidence that these combinations may be effective. Uh, they may actually result in and the higher success rates in patients who have these severe infections. The other thing that's interesting about the combination of beta-lactams onto daptomycin is that in the laboratory we're finding it, it could be dose-sparing. In other words, we can lower the dose somewhat with daptomycin and still get very effective um, killing and without the emergence of resistance, which is very important. If we, if we raise the inoculum high enough, the, the the bacterial density, the amount of organism present, um, you know, daptomycin can be defeated um, by various mechanisms by enterococci. But in the presence of a beta-lactam, that's not likely to occur. And in, in several circumstances, we have used organisms that, facium in, in particular, that have a high tendency to become daptomycin resistance, but in the presence of one of these drugs I just mentioned, ampicillin, septarylene, or the penem, septraxone, for example, we can prevent the emergence of resistance. 
And I think beta-lactams, for the most part, are relatively safe uh, to, as an add-on to a drug like daptomycin, which is devoid of nephrotoxicity and, again, has muscle issues, but for the most part is a relatively safe agent thus far, even used at higher dosages. So I think, in, in, to answer your question, I think that's where we are right now. Speaking, I mean, the fact that there's no other uh, alternatives on the market currently that we have a lot of experience with, uh, that would be our preferred, probably, regimen. Um, as I mentioned, there are other agents, um, but we don't have a lot of experience with. For example, aritabansin is a lipoglycopeptide that has activity against enterococci as well as staphylococci. And it may be possible to use this agent against severe enterococcal infections, including DRE, and possibly in combination, but we just don't have the experience yet uh, clinically to, to do that. In a laboratory setting, however, uh, we do find that this agent has synergy, again, with beta-lactams, the same ones we just mentioned, daposone, septarline, ceftriaxone, and erdipenem. So those might be viable options for the future, but we'll have to gain more experience experience with this um, very complicated lipoglycopeptide that has a very long half-life and um, dosing in bacteremia in itself uh, has not been uh, established yet at this time. So I think that probably would be my preferred regimen. All right, thank you for that answer, Mike. So I guess the one question that often comes up is, you know, you mentioned a lot of uh, combination therapies with daptomycin and you mentioned a few different beta-lactams. Uh, do you have a preference for ampicillin iridopenem or uh, one of the cephalosporins, or is it really just kind of a, a risk-risk-benefit and, and understanding perhaps what other infections are going on in a given patient and, and trying to synergize um, treatment um, that covers everything um, versus just the VRE? Well, Tom, you know, I think that, you know, any of those agents probably work fairly equally. Uh, we found that right now in our experiments that we've had our best luck with ampicillin, um, given either as a continuous infusion or intermittent dosing. Um, Septarline works fairly equal to ampicillin, and uh, erdipenem probably is another agent that we find as a once-daily administration works just as well as ampicillin, if not better, um, with daptomycin. So those three agents are probably the ones that we have the most experience with in terms of synergizing and as well as some clinical evidence and for the prevention of the emergence of resistance to daptomycin. As I mentioned, erdipenem has a little baggage with it because it, it is broad spectrum. You are going to get grand negative coverage, and we never want to upset the microbiome unless we really have to. Um, but as for a convenience factor, that's another thing to consider when we're treating our patients. What, what can we get away with? I mean, what's going to be simpler to administer? Um, all three of these drugs, ampicillin, septarline, and erdipenem, are fairly safe choices, but there is some stewardship concerns with broad spectrum. Uh, there may be some administration concerns, whether or not you could pull off a continuous infusion or prolonged infusion with ampicillin. Um, septarline has a cost issue. So these are all considerations, but I think they would work equally well. Um, with daptomycin for a patient with a DRE infection. All right, thank you, Mike, for that. So I guess the other question that comes up is, you know, in addition to what is the right drugs to pick is, you know, how long do we need to treat for? And um, when we talk about combination therapy, the one thing we always struggle with is, um, 
you know, do we continue both drugs for the full course? You know, do we do we drop the the companion drug with the backbone drug? And in many cases, when we talk about VRE, it's how long do we need to consider to continue the ampicillin with aptamycin? So, um, based on, on on some of your research and, and your review of the literature, um, how long do you think we need to treat a, a VRE bacteremia? You know, in the setting of appropriate source control, and you know, how long would you consider treatment? of drugs used in combination with um, the full duration or could you shorten one um, versus the other? Yeah, so another great question. So I, I guess it really depends on the source of infection and, and also the, the host, the, the patient uh, immunocompromised or not in terms of how long we would treat combination versus single entity. Um, there's not a lot of data out there clinically to substantiate any de-escalation of of combination therapy at the moment. Um, in terms of effective endocarditis, there's some data that would suggest at least for viridin streptococci that you could use combination therapy with an aminoglycoside and penicillin for two weeks or, and then drop the aminoglycoside and continue on for two more weeks, for example, uh, with um, the penicillin. But it's not the case in enterococci where we have that clinical knowledge that we could use two drugs up front, for example, and de-escalate after two weeks um, or set time that would be easy for clinicians to work with. Um, I can say that if, if it was a deep endovascular infection, such as infective endocarditis, the recommendations for treatment just overall are four to six weeks, and with most bearing on the side of six weeks or longer for enterococcal infective endocarditis. Um, again, with no um, particular recommendations to use combo and when to de-escalate. If patients did not have a deep endovascular infection, but all source control has been um, taken care of, so there's no abscesses that need to be drained, there's no infected medical devices, then, I, then a 14 to 21 day course would seem reasonable, again, depending upon the patient's underlying condition, their, their, whether they're immune suppressed, immunosuppressed or not. Um, but really the question that you were seem to prying at was whether or not we have a formula for de-escalating. Now, we have done those types of experiments, especially with staphylococci in our laboratory and a little bit with enterococci thus far, but we don't really have the set point of actually when um, after, because most of our experiments are running 7 to 14 days, some 21 days. We have been experimenting running two drugs for seven days and then dropping off um, the beta-lactam in most cases and keeping the workhorse, in this case would be daptomycin for the rest of the therapy. But it's not always successful. Sometimes we get an emergence of an organism after, you know, four or five days dropping the beta-lactam that uh, develops resistance or was, was there all, all along and we didn't see it until the beta-lactam was removed. So the exact timing of this is unknown. Clinically, I mean, we have a bacteremia protocol at the Detroit Medical Center for MRSA, and we're kind of looking at um, using beta-lactams and vancomycin, for example, up front uh, for a patient who has MRSA bacteremia, and we kind of developed our own guidelines for changing or dropping off the beta-lactam, and that is based on clinical response. The patient responds very readily. We clear the bloodstream. We have two or three consecutive blood cultures that are negative. Um, they felt comfortable enough to drop the beta-lactam and continue the vancomycin. So using it up front and then dropping off the beta-lactam once the blood uh, culture clears and it's been um, 
and verified several times that that's the case. Uh, maybe something to look at in the future in terms of making recommendations where you might be able to de-escalate. One of the problems with the whole idea about using combination therapy as well is when do you actually use combination therapy? So um, most cases that we see in the literature, if we're going to document something now, they usually start on a drug. Maybe for BRE, Batium, they'll start on daptomycin alone. Maybe it's at 8 milligrams per kilogram per day. Maybe it's at 10. And somewhere down the line, the patient may not be responding or maybe um, they even develop a daptomycin non-susceptible strain. And it's then when you see the beta-lactam being added, whether it be septarline or ampicillin, and then the regimen maybe isn't even increased. Maybe they started at 8 of DAPTO, they increase it to 10, they add on septarline or ampicillin or one of these drugs, and then they continue on. Um, the question is, is how effective is that versus starting up front with a, a two-regimen, a two-antibiotic regimen up front, like a beta-lactam and daptomycin, would you ever need to uh, add, uh, add additional antibiotics or switch antibiotics if you added it up front. And I, I would suggest that probably your likelihood of switching therapy would be a lot less. And we'd be more asking the question, when can you de-escalate? But it's because we kind of do staggered things. We start with monotherapy and we add on as we need to go, I think is the formula for continued drug resistance. And, and that's really what we need to study. Is it better to add them up front, de-escalate, and, and then keep the main workhorse on board, or is it uh, should we continue our practice of adding one drug and then adding another when things go wrong or patients don't respond? And I would think the 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 latter would be the the earlier decision would be to add the two drugs together and then de-escalate. But again, we don't have the clinical experience at this time to make those recommendations. All right, thank you, Mike. No, I would agree. I think we, we get aggressive too late in infectious diseases. I mean, we, we would never do this in, in a patient with an oncolytic disease, yet we have this wait-and-see approach uh, with patients with serious infections, including VRE. Uh, and I so think, Tom, a lot, unfortunately, I think that's a lot to do with cost, too, unfortunately. That's an underlying theme. Yes, I agree. So, I, did, I mean, so Mike, um, this kind of brings me to my next question, and you know, and I, and I think you kind of set this up well is, you know, what do we do in these non-responding patients? So I really appreciate a lot of the work you did on the MRSA guidelines. And I think one of the most helpful things for us as clinicians is, you know, when do you start thinking about switching drugs in someone who's failing? And um, you, um, in the MRSA guidelines, you nicely identified that five to seven day window. And, and rather than adding a drug to a failing regimen, um, there's a recommendation within the MRSA guidelines. Um, to switch agents. So um, can we apply that same logic to VRE, um, patients with VRE um, bloodstream infections? Do you think that five to seven day window is, is an appropriate thing to, um, you know, if someone's not responding to that point to perhaps consider another drug? Um, granted, patients with VRE tend to be a lot sicker. Um, I think yeah. you nicely describe, you know, all, all the conditions um, that, that typically accompany um, patients who develop VRE infections is just a more vulnerable host. Um, but what are your thoughts are, you know, when should you think about, you know, thinking about switching therapies or adding on? Well, I guess the first question would be, would you add on a drug or would you switch therapies? And at what point in time would you consider doing that? And to make it easy, let's just assume there's appropriate source control. So everything has been drained, um, hardware has been removed, um, which is less of an issue with VRE, but 
um, you know, really we're, we're in a setting where, where if, if the patient is failing, it's likely due to drug failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, another difficult question. I guess if all the appropriate things were done and you knew the source of infection, whether it was a deep endovascular infection versus something more controllable, um, and it would really also depend on the stability of the patient. And if the patient's stable and they're back to remic, for example, it might afford you more time um, to think about when to switch and how to switch therapy or to add additional therapy on. And I guess it really depends on what you started with. Um, and because, for example, if you started with linazolid, it's a little more difficult to think about what you may add on to linazolid because it's not likely to be synergistic. Uh, linazolid may be a fine drug. Again, there is clinical evidence that it works in VRE infections, including um, bloodstream infection. However, what would you add to it if the patient wasn't responding? Again, not sure. You might be adding another drug that hopefully with two drugs, they, they may not be synergistic, but they both can help. Um, I'm not sure. And again, there's this whole thing about adding a cytal drug to a static drug because sometimes you can actually have antagonism of the cytal drug. So with linazolid, it may not be as clear-cut as to what you would add to it um, or if you would just switch out. And one other thing that's really important, again, as these isolates are positive, the blood cultures are positive, hopefully susceptibility is coming back from the laboratory and you're checking to make sure that there hasn't been any changes in the susceptibility to the primary agent that you've started with. So if the organism is still susceptible and the patient's clinically stable, um, but yet you've gone beyond, let's say, the five to seven day window, if you want to use that as a marker, um, then I guess you'd start to get nervous and decide that you may need something else. If you've done everything else in your power, as you mentioned, to remove all sources that could be causing this infection in the bloodstream, and I think you'd want to be thinking about adding on, but again, it depends on what you started with. If you started with daptomycin and still daptyl susceptible, you could choose one of the beta-lactams to add on that we mentioned earlier, ampicillin, septarylene, for example, a drug like ertapenem, but remember ertapenem is broad spectrum. You may not need that extra coverage. Um, and then would you escalate the dose? Would you go up? where you are. If you started at 8, would you go to 10? If you started at 10, would you go to 12? And I would suggest that you probably would dial the dose up and watch the patient carefully for any adverse events related to that escalation in dose. Um, If the organism became daptyl non-susceptible, that's an interesting question. Um, We know that we can still fight through daptomycin non-susceptibility when you add another drug to it. In fact, you can regain daptomycin susceptibility by the addition of beta-lactam. We have shown that in our laboratory that daptomycin non-susceptible strains, which would be um, above four until they change the breakpoint for this organism. So if you have an an eight, for example, to daptomycin, you can bring that back into the four, two, or one range with the addition of the beta-lactam. So it is possible to escalate the dose and to add a beta-lactam and still fight through that. Alternatively, you'd have to uh, switch therapy. I'm not sure I would keep daptomycin and linazolid together only because there's a potential for antagonism. We, we know that that exists in staphylococci, and I would suggest it would ex- exist in enterococci, so that would not be my choice. 
I would consider adding a beta-lactam, but it's not likely to be synergistic with uh, linazolid. Uh, the mechanism by which it's synergistic with daptomycin is not the same with the noxolidinone. So you'd probably be switching off therapy if you didn't like linazolid. And another thing, you would have to be checking the patient for uh, bone marrow suppression by linazolid. And once you get up to that 10-day window, you start to start worrying about that. So as you approach seven days, you want to be careful about linazolid and, and take a look at uh, the issue with uh, platelets, for example. But I think to, to circle back on your question, it would be likely if the patient's uh, clinically stable, you could probably you could probably go beyond a few days of being bacteremic. If they're clinically unstable, then you would make your decision much earlier based solely on the patient is deteriorating and you want to make aggressive changes, and that would be an escalation of dose and the addition of, addition of therapy, which would likely be if you started with dapto or beta-lactam. If you started with linazolid, again, it's a little more questionable as to what you would add versus what you would change to. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, um, but we've had all kinds of situations happen. I mean, I've had a situation where we had a patient who was HIV positive, uh, vancomycin-resistant um, ethacium. We could not find the source, even with um, doing scans with um, white blood cells, for example, to, to determine the source infection. Couldn't find it. Um, patient was on daptomycin, we had to escalate the dose. Unfortunately, this patient was started on a dose of four milligrams per kilogram per day, which is a skin dose of daptomycin. It was dialed up a few days later, but not in time enough uh, because of an organism that uh, grew out in the bloodstream that was actually an eight um, to daptomycin. So we decided to continue daptomycin and add, uh, in this case, septarylene to the regimen. Um, the patient at one point was on linazolid as well, but they dropped the platelets. Um, eventually, they did clear their bloodstream after about 10 days of daptomycin high dose with septarylene uh, for this very difficult patient, and the platelets did start to come back. Um, but these are the difficult decisions that you have to make in terms of therapy. So I would think that would be the way to, to look at this one. No, thank you for that, Mike. And, you know, I would agree. I think you did a nice job highlighting the complexity of treating these patients. And I think ultimately um, your point about letting the patient guide therapy, if a, if a patient's unstable, the need to become more aggressive, um, and, you know, perhaps having a, a little bit more of a margin um, in terms of a patient who is stable. Uh, so, Mike, you know, this kind of brings us to the end of the podcast here, and uh, I really appreciate you answering these very difficult questions that I posed. I mean, it's clear that a lot of these questions, you know, we always look to randomize clinical trials and and for an, an infection condition um, like VRE bloodstream infections, you know, we're not going to see that. So, you know, I, I think you did a very nice job in, in your article really kind of summarizing, you know, what the data tells us and, and you know, providing some directions that really help us treat um, these, these complicated patients. So before we conclude, just want to know if there's any concluding marks or take-home messages um, you'd like to make for the audience. Um, but otherwise, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking time to talk to us today. Sure, Tom. I, I think, you know, the paper that was, was published in Pharmacotherapy, is probably, it's a good summary of, of the complexity, as you mentioned, about enterococcal fascium and, and, and serious infections due to this organism. I think it 
goes through the literature and talks about therapy, uh, in particular the mechanisms of resistance that occurs to the primary therapies that we think about when we're going after this organism in our compromised patients. And then it comes to the point where we're talking about the situations that we mentioned today about the difficult to treat patients and as well as the complexity in terms of combination therapy, when to add things on. It does a nice review of the literature. In fact, there's a table in, in the manuscript that talks to us uh, regarding the um, what the evidence is and what the references are for in either in vitro or for the clinical evidence where combination therapy has been used uh, in the treatment of these serious infections. So I think it's a good summary paper if you're interested in a quick review of Ethacium and the and the new and old uh, agents that are available for the treatment of this organism, as well as what's coming down the line in terms of combination therapy. This might be a paper that uh, you might find the information readily at hand. Okay, thank you. And this concludes our podcast for today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.